What's up, kinfolk? Welcome to the number one college football show. I am your host, RJ Young. Thank you for watching on the Fox Sports app, YouTube, or listening wherever you get your podcast. Today, we are going to do our week three mailbag where I send out a tweet, we send out a tweet, ask you what you would like to hear me talk about with producer Tyler, and we get straight into it. And as you can see, I am dressed for the festivities as it is OU Nebraska week where we are headed up to Lincoln. I say we. I'm headed up to Lincoln. I'm very excited about that, and I'm more excited to get to your questions. And for that, I want to bring in our lead producer, producer Tyler Wojak. Tyler, how you doing, man? I'm hanging in. I'm not going to lie. Uh, tough start for my Irish this year, 0-2, but that actually leads us to our very first question, unfortunately. Um, this one comes from Sportsball Company. Is Ohio State's win over Notre Dame no longer a quality win? Man, it, that's tough, right? Because as you, as many of you know, Marshall absolutely took Notre Dame to the woodshed, had a tailback rush for over 160 yards. Henry Columbia running the thundering herd for them, actually got ran off from Texas Tech to Marshall. Shout out to Charles Huff, who got the first top 10 victory for Marshall since like the last top 10 victory was like 2003, number six, Kansas State. It's been that long ago. And remember, one that long ago that Marshall was an FCS program, let alone one that is absolutely running the Sun Belt. Sun Belt, so much fun and just such a tough league this year. So we saw three Sun Belt teams get wins against, well, teams they probably shouldn't have beat, Georgia Southern, North uh, Nebraska, and of course, Appalachia State, Texas A&M. I am inclined to think, though, that Ohio State's trials against Notre Dame speak more highly to how good Notre Dame can be. Now, I also wonder... And this is where I kind of get into it with Tyler on this. Did Notre Dame do the Tom Herman? For those of you that don't know, the Tom Herman is when you sell out to try to beat the best team on your schedule. And then you go into the tank because you're beat up, you're hurt, and you're, right, frankly, dejected. So they did this against 2019 LSU. It was a seven-point ball game. Texas lost that on the 40 acres, didn't come back from it. It feels now like Notre Dame is on the same trajectory with a first-year head coach. Tyler, I'm really interested as, you know, you are our resident Notre Dame insider and alumnus. Do you think that Ohio State's win against Notre Dame is just a little bit overrated? Well, a little bit more overrated than we thought the night of, for sure. But I will say, as bad as things are for Notre Dame right now, and don't get it twisted, it's bad. It is bleak. No one has ever... Confuse me as like a beacon of optimism, and I will shoot you straight here. It is really, really bad in South Bend right now. However, I will say it is still a quality win for Ohio State because defensively, Notre Dame is still pretty strong. I know that they lost to Marshall, but that was more due to the fact that the offense is completely inept right now. Defensively, Notre Dame still has some dudes, and Ohio State was able to score enough to win without Jackson Smith and Jigba, who's I would think their best player on offense, as well as Julian Fleming, another top wide receiver, and maybe even bigger than that, they were able to answer a lot of questions that, you know, surrounded that team in the offseason, especially after that Michigan game was, is Ohio State tough enough? And I think they proved that, especially at the end of that game on that 14 play drive, where they just sort of imposed their will on Notre Dame's defense. And that alone, you know, it. It was it was a top five matchup at the time. Certainly isn't now, and it's not going to be looked at the same way the rest of the season. But I think inside that locker room, Ohio State was able to answer a lot of questions about themselves and prove some people wrong. And in that sense, when especially when you consider the context too, like LeBron James was on the sideline, Joe Burrow. It was the first game of the season. All that taken into account, I do think it is still a quality win for Ohio State. Just not as much as they probably thought ten days ago. 
Jason Tatum was wearing a signed jersey from someone. And I remember looking at that going, why are you doing that? There is a special place in hell for people that wear signed jerseys to games. I just don't know about what that circle is, but it really got under my skin because that was supposed to be, I don't know, on a plaque or maybe raised up in somebody's rafters in their living room. But you're right. Like there was a lot going on for that game. Everybody who was anybody related to Ohio State wanted to come out and see that game. And to your point, like the one that I would take there is that, yes, Ohio State was able to impose their will toward the end of the game, run the ball with some authority, which is not, frankly, what I expect from a Ryan Day offense, even though they do run the football and they need to run the football. I did not expect them to be able to do that against anybody. Honestly, I thought they were just going to keep throwing it. Not unlike, you know, the Denver Broncos against the Seattle Seahawks, but that's something else entirely. (laughs) Tyler, what else do we have on the rundown? Next one comes from What Up Heck. Does Sark, Steve Sarkeesian, not trust in Hudson Card's passing game? I don't think that is what's going on at all. Like, that one kind of took me out just a little bit because I was watching this game. Like, I think most people that listen to the show, watch this show, were watching that game. And you saw Quinn Ewers is absolutely spinning it. 9-12, 134, goes out with the shoulder injury. And then Hudson Card comes in, and there's a reason why he's the number two on the depth chart. It's because he's not as good as the starter. Like, that's plain and then later in the game he hurt his right foot which is his plant foot for which he's able to fire off and throw the ball down the field now along with that he's just not the same sort of deep ball thrower that Ewers is like that was on display against Alabama when Xavier Worthy was absolutely going at you Quincy McKinstry taking the top off the defense dropped a surefire touchdown pass and completed another one and then you have to remember that you have Bijan Robinson eight yards deep. Like this is the part where I really get flustered in that I have to do these lists. Matter of fact, you could say that I rank people and things, teams professionally. That is my job. And when I left Bijan Robinson off of my top five Heisman candidates, mostly to make room for a guy like Will Anderson who played a terrible game against Texas, that's because that went straight at Texas fans who were going, yo man, we got one of the best tailbacks in the country. How come he's not on your Heisman list? Meanwhile, we got to deal with you telling me that Hudson Card, they didn't want to throw the ball with him? Of course not. You want Bijan Robinson to win this game for you. And credit to Steve Sarkeesian, who kept trying to feed Bijan the rock. 21 rushes for that dude. Want to say three catches for 73 yards. And they certainly did better against Alabama with Bijan than they did against ULM. But I'm not inclined to put this at Hudson Card's feet at all. If anything, I'm put it at the foot of the person whose feet actually matter. That'd be Burt Auburn. Look. You make your field goal, which is a chip shot in the first half. You beat the number one team in the country. It's that simple. I don't think that it's fair to put this on Hudson Card at all. That said, they got UTSA coming to town, and we all know that I think UTSA is very, very tough. And you got a Texas Tech that knocked off a top 25 program and is undefeated to start this season 2-0. and I think they got a quarterback problem, but it's not the quarterback problem that is Hudson Card throwing the ball. It's simply that he's not their best quarterback. Does that make sense, Tyler? Did I ramble too far there? No, I agree 100%. I think Sark actually has a ton of trust in Hudson Carr, but when you consider the situation, Card looked really hurt. There was that one third down, I think, where he scrambled out to his right, and he had to run probably like 20 yards of distance to gain seven yards. And, man, watching him run, it was it was tough to watch, but credit to him for sticking with it, staying through the rest of the game and, and giving it his all. I think in the future here, Sark will be a lot more aggressive with uh, Hudson Carr. But quick side note, since you're – you're from this neck of the woods. Is it like a prerequisite to have a name that fits the bill to be the Texas quarterback, like Hudson Card? 
I feel like when he was born, his parents named him Hudson Carr because they knew this is going to be the future QB1 at Texas, much like Colt McCoy. Is that is that a thing? I mean, I've heard of baseball names, and it seems like Texas quarterback names have a similar deal. Hey, man, I think that you're on to something. And then we had a guy named Tyrone as the starting quarterback at Texas. Okay? And then we kind of broke that up. <laughs> I was, Ty, Tyrone swoops. Whatever, right? It's one of my favorite packages ever. The 18-wheeler package for Tyrone swoops. Really wanted to be pretty doggone good. Then you had David Ash, and then you had a quarterback that it took us two years to learn how to say his name, right? I'm way ahead on DJ Uwe Ungalale because I cover recruiting as much as I do college football, but it took people a solid two years to say Sam Ellinger and not <laughs> Sam Ellinger. So I think, you know, we just kind of struck gold with Hudson Card, who also is from that neck of the woods. Like, that's also interesting to me in that he's from Austin, Texas. Sam Ellinger's from Austin, Texas. I want to say that Charles Wright, who is going to be the third guy on the depth chart, is also from Austin, Texas. So they haven't had to go very far to get a dude who very much fits the bill of the guy who should be calling plays on the 40 acres. But Tyler, going out on this one with this question, what are we going to do when Malik Murphy finally gets a shot to compete with Arch Manning for the starting quarterback job at the University of Texas? Well, if it's based on names, I have a feeling who's going to win that job. So hopefully it's a little bit more about the talent on the field. Um, All right, let's move on to the next one. That was just a quick aside. This one comes from NinerFan underscore 77. Two-part question. What does K.J. Jefferson have to do to get into into the Heisman hype machine? And when will Sam Pittman win Coach of the Year? It's a very good question on both parts, right? First, many of you know that I'm a tremendous Sam Pittman fan, and I've been very bullish on Arkansas since he got the job. And last year, I was vindicated like many Arkansas fans. They won nine games. They beat Penn State in the Outback Bowl, who's a top 25 team this year, and headed down to play Auburn in the first. They're going to be the first Big Ten team to play at Auburn at Jordan-Hare. That's fantastic, honestly. But for KG Jefferson to enter the Heisman Trophy conversation, they're going to have to knock off Alabama. And I don't really care whether or not Alabama won by one point against Texas. They're still undefeated. They're still the number two team in the country. And quite as it's kept, Arkansas had Alabama on the ropes last year. I want to say that game was 42 to 35. If KJ Jefferson goes and gets a W over Nick Saban, yeah, we're going to be talking about him being in the Heisman category. If for no other reason, then I had Anthony Richardson on that watch after he led Florida to an upset of Utah, quickly fell off of that with a loss to Kentucky. But that's how deep and really competitive the SEC is. And for Sam Pittman to win coach of the year, again, you're going to have to beat Alabama. You're going to have to make the SEC championship game at a minimum. It's very, it's real tough, man. It's, it's the toughest division in all of college football. And Arkansas happens to be good enough, I think, to win in most other conferences. Like you put Arkansas in the Big 12, probably going to play in the Big 12 championship. Same thing with the Pac-12. I don't know that it's true with the Big 10, but if you put them in the Big 10 West, perhaps that's true as well. ACC, I would see the same thing. You just happen to play in a division that has an A&M team that is talented. We'll get to about how they're underperforming, I'm sure. But also an LSU team that can jump up and bite you. They figure it out. An Ole Miss team that is, frankly, as good as Arkansas. It was one of the best games of the year last year. So it's just going to have to it's going to have to be a big win that everybody's watching for. Everybody notices for either one of those guys to step onto the national scene in a way that I'm sure many Arkansas fans would love to see happen for them. Does that answer the question you think, Tyler? Yeah, and to give you credit, you've been on this Arkansas train for a while now. In the preseason, you said, hey, these guys are really good. I want to give some love to their running back, Raheem Sanders, as well. Like, don't get me wrong, K.J. Jefferson, he's a stud. He's the quarterback. He's going to get all the attention. But 
Pittman likes to run a run-first offense, and Sanders is averaging 6.2 yards per carry right now. If oh, yeah, they keep, can go. Yeah, if he keeps getting 20-plus carries a game, that's a dark horse to win the Doak, Doak Walker Award at the end of the year. All right, that's it for the questions from the fans. Let's get, a, get to a couple that you asked your followers. Uh, the first one, it being Oklahoma-Nebraska week. I feel like we've got to go to this one first. And you asked, what's your favorite memory of the Oklahoma-Nebraska rivalry. So I'll just tee it up to you first. What's your favorite memory from this rivalry? 2006 Big 12 Championship. Oklahoma knocks off Nebraska 21-7. to And we get to go to the locker room where we get my favorite memory of Oklahoma and Nebraska's rivalry that starts with, hey, look, this here. This is the greatest freestyle of all time from Malcolm Kelly. Matter of fact, let me see if I can embarrass myself right quick. Boys getting quiet. Gonna get crunk. Head back to Longview. Kelly popping trunk. I ain't even tripping. Riding and I'm sipping. Let me come through. Faux, faux, steady tipping. On that new lack. Watch that trunk crack. Let me sit sideways. TB run it back. Maybe AP. Maybe AD. I ain't even tripping because we some athletes. Messing with Schmitty. In the summertime. Hold up. Hold up. I got it. I got it. <laughs> Messing with Schmitty in the summertime. He get pissed if we don't make a time. <laughs> I got I love that. <laughs> but we going to get it because we got to finish. Nebraska Corn Huskers, man, we diminished. I used to have the whole thing memorized, Tyler, because I graduated high school yeah. in 2006. So this hit me different. That's my favorite memory because I didn't expect any of that to happen in the post-game locker room celebration. I was going to say, I'll cut you some slack. This was 2006. If you still remembered it, that'd be pretty impressive. Uh, but we did get some good responses. Let's go to the first one. This one from comes from Judy. Uh, Judy says, not me rushing through my ACT and Dale Tower to make it in time for the second quarter in 2000. Do you remember that one? Yo, man, I'm 13 at the time, and Judy's just a little bit older than me. I'm sorry, Judy. Judy's also uh, a librarian in the local Oklahoma City area and was one of the first people to point me to what I was doing was a little bit different in that she pointed out to me that folks would show up to the Metro system libraries to watch YouTube videos that I had made about Oklahoma because internet access was so scarce at the time. But I also remember the 2000 game being a turning point for Oklahoma football. Now to set the stage here, Oklahoma was sorry in the nineties. As a matter of fact, the nineties, Nebraska teams are made. That's maybe the best decade for any football team ever. Right. We're talking about Tommy Harris. We're talking about Alman Green. We're talking about Lawrence Phillips. We're talking about three national championships in like five years. I want to say 94, 95, 97. Right. And at the time, Oklahoma had gone through Howard Schnellenberger, John Blake, Gary Gibbs. It just wasn't fun. And we expected to get our behinds handed to us as we are taking on one of the best teams in the country. As a matter of fact, that it was the first team I want to say since like the 1960s to knock off a number one and number two team in back-to-back weeks, like Kansas State was number two in the country. And we expected Nebraska to hand us our head. And we went down zero, of uh, say zero, 14 to zero. And came back and won that game 31 to 14. Oklahoma fans do not rush the field. It is beneath us. We expect to win. We tore down the damn goalpost for that game because it was such a cathartic experience to say, oh, we really are this good. And that was when it first felt to me like OU was a national championship team. A lot of different things to take away from that season in particular. But I got to say, Nebraska is as pivotal to many Oklahoma's fandoms, going back to the 80s, 70s, game of the century, we're in the year 51 of that anniversary. 
that game in 2000 such a big deal. And I'm glad that Judy was able to finish the ACT to get back to seeing what is one of the more historic games in Oklahoma history and one of the great games in this rivalry. Yeah, otherwise I would have questioned uh, Judy's commitment to the program if she was scheduling a... <laughs> Her ACT on the same day. I'm kidding, Judy. I'm kidding. All right, let's go to the next one. This one comes from Ben Osborne. Uh, this, by a mile, you can see there. Uh, from when OU was my favorite team. All right, RJ, you might have to help me out here. Holyway? Am I saying that right? Holloway. 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 All right, my, Holloway. my favorite QB and Keith Jackson, my favorite receiver and announcer while we're at it. This play had it all. So this play that he is talking about is... 1986 OU Nebraska, the game is tied at 17. There's 18 seconds left to play. And remember that Barry Switcher, Jim Donnan ran the wishbone. And they had a sophomore quarterback in Jamel Holloway. Remember, Jamel Holloway led Oklahoma to a national championship as a true freshman. The last person to do that since then has been Trevor Lawrence. Keith Jackson is six foot three, 248 pounds, and plays tight end. You do not expect that man to get the ball, but as any Oklahoma fan will tell you, This is the best athlete to ever play OU football that nobody talks about anymore. A lot of love to Adrian Peterson, a little bit more, I think, to Kyler Murray. But Keith Jackson is, for the old heads, that dude. So they decided on third and 12 to just say, we're going to throw it up to Keith Jackson because he's going to go make a play. And this man ran down the sideline, pushed off, juked the man, and then had a one-handed grab to extend the drive for OU. And of course, OU ends up having an outstanding season that year. It's it's an example of an OG Megatron, right? Like we have this series at Fox that I really enjoy watching called You Kids Just Don't Know that really puts a highlight on players like this. But I am here for Ben bringing that to me because 88 was something different. Matter of fact, one more story about Keith Jackson and I'm gonna throw it back to Tyler on this because it's just, I, I, I love telling these stories in particular. Keith Jackson went into Barry Switcher's office and said, Coach, you got to give me the ball. Like, I I know I can help us win. And Barry Switcher, to to his credit, said, you know what? You damn right. He walked Keith Jackson down to the film room where the coaches were watching film, lights are off, flipped the lights on and said, I don't care how you do it. Get this man the football. So they're getting ready to play Nebraska, and I want to say 1985. And the first play from scrimmage, Jim Donnan, calls a reverse to Keith Jackson, a tight end reverse. And that man took it the distance. He rushed for 136 yards on three damn carries against Nebraska. That team ends up beating Penn State for the national championship in the Orange Bowl. He's a all pro in the NFL, and I think he should be an NFL Hall of Famer. But Keith Jackson was that dude. Also, shout out to Ben Osborne, who was my first editor at Fox Sports and been so kind to me. Long live Slam Magazine. Really love that he brought that to our attention, Tyler. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I don't have a favorite memory from this series. I think the peak of it was a little bit before my time. But as I was prepping for this show and I was doing some research on the rivalry, and I was even watching some highlights after you texted me earlier today, I realized this is the type of matchup that my grandpa Woj, may he rest in peace, he would have absolutely loved this. So I'm sure he had some favorite memories. I wish I could go back and ask him because I remember the last few times I was able to watch football with him This was about the same time that the spread offense was taking over college football. And let me tell you, he took it as a personal offense when any team ran shotgun within the red zone. I mean, he pretty much got mad every time they ran the shotgun. 
but he was old school football. He believed in running the ball and stopping the run. And I don't think I've seen him more upset than when a team would go, they'd run the goal line fade or anything like that near the goal line. So when I see these wishbone offenses, the ground and pound style that these teams embodied for decades, I, I wish I could go back and ask him because I'm sure I could get some great stuff out of him. Right on, man. No, I'm I'm excited. To, I'm I love hearing that. If for no other reason, then yes, your grandpa was right because there's something special about wishbone teams. One fact that he probably would raise up is one that I had to be coached on. Did you know that there used to be a tremendous crown on these turf fields where these dudes were turf? Like your knees would go out, ACLs were getting blown because basically you're running on cement. Yeah. But they had like a crown that was like 45 degrees going downhill so that you could better run the wishbone. That's how committed some of these teams used to be to it. That's so funny. I bet the players were like, hey, why don't we go outside and practice in the uh, in the parking lot or play in the parking lot because it might be a little bit softer surface over there. All right, so our next one comes from you again. You tweeted, who needs their Texas quarterback to come back more, the Longhorns and Quinn Ewers or the Dallas Cowboys with Dak Prescott? What are your thoughts? So I thought about this because I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan and I don't really say it too much because there's nothing. I, I don't get to gloat. All anybody gets to say is, RJ, I had much respect for you. Why do you do this to yourself? And I don't know is the answer. Been a Dallas Cowboys fan since I was seven years old. And then the first doggone game of the year, we lose this man that we have paid so much money to. I am paid. Jerry Jones paid, paid so much money to. Who also happens to be, I think, one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL. And what do we have next on the depth chart? I had to go look and see. Cooper Rush is still collecting a check to be a Cowboys quarterback. And then I thought about it. Man, I just watched Quinn Ewers get knocked out of the game against Alabama, a la Colt McCoy, 2009. Having fun at my own expense, quite honestly, going, who needs their quarterback more? I think the answer is quite obvious. Texas, because they got a shorter amount of games, and you really want that dude for Oklahoma, because I expect the, the Red River rivalry to be a game that basically is a de facto play-in for the Big 12 championship this year. But also, we ain't never been no good at Dallas in the in the 2000s, in the aughts, Tyler. And uh, it's starting to bug me, starting to get under my skin, starting to just, 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 just a little bit get into my brain. What do you think? Who needs their quarterback more? <laughs> well, personally, I would say Quinn, but I want to get to our first response here. This one comes from at Killer Cambrazy. I think he has sort of the same mindset as you. He says, Quinn, and it's not even close. Dallas is screwed regardless. I mean. Hey, man, like, I wish he was wrong, but it, them, them, what, what, what do the kids say? Them facts, though. Them is facts. They facts, though. <laughs> All right, let's go to the next one. This one comes from Will Humphrey, which, again, kind of going off what you said earlier. Cooper Rush is Dallas's backup, unless they can go get Jimmy G. I, I think the rest doesn't need to be said. He's saying that Dallas needs it because Cooper Rush is the alternative. Hey, man, uh, maybe Zeke can throw a football or, or CD because he damn sure couldn't catch one. Look, I'm getting flustered. That's what's happening. I'm getting flustered because I really want Dallas to be good because my dad is a Seahawks fan, and even he came out on top this weekend and had no business coming out. on. So it's real rough at the young household right now, right? My daddy's got Super Bowls to talk about in my lifetime. I got – the last time we won a Super Bowl, Deion Sanders was still playing football. That man is a head coach at an FCS program in Jackson, Mississippi now. It's getting kind of rowdy over here, Tyler. Look, I would feel sympathetic to you, but my NFL team is the Browns. So, like, 
I don't even have to go into all the issues they've had over the past, I don't know, century. But that's it for the questions that you asked the fans. And now I'm going to pose a couple questions to you here as we close out this show. This one, Texas A&M. All right, they're staring down another eight and four season. Maybe, maybe worse. I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but let's not say it's not possible. Uh, so they're staring down another eight and four season. If the Aggies lose to Miami this weekend, is Jimbo Fisher officially on the hot seat? I mean, it strikes me that Jimbo Fisher has been able to hold on to his job uh, in the way that he's been able to hold on to it. Not to say that Jimbo Fisher is not a qualified head coach. I mean, he won a national championship. But the way in which they have lost games has been really head-scratching for me. Mostly because Jimbo has said we need to be able to run the football, and they can't run the football. Like, that's that's stark to me because – Devon A-Chain ought to be able to go for seven yards a pop. Aeneas Smith ought to be seven yards per touch. Haynes King ought to be able to play pitch and catch, and they were not able to do that against Appalachian State, right? That's just a bad look. Now you are in a, we got to win this game if for no other reason than to keep our own self-respect, but to give us an opportunity to just kind of maybe make the college football playoff when we get our act together before the SEC conference schedule begins. But I'm also kind of, frustrated I think with myself because I look at this roster and I look at Jimbo Fisher and I see an outstanding football team on paper but I'm also the guy that saw an outstanding football team on paper for Texas one of those seems to be coming through and the other one does not I think that we're in a winner go home situation for them but you didn't expect that for Miami if anything I expected Miami to be the program that had everything to prove in this game but more now, this is going to be a referendum on Jimbo Fisher as a head coach at AM. And money's not a big deal to AM. And I'm not even talking about NIL or or even what they spend in as far as the folks that go to Kyle Field. I'm talking about the alumni base. Like the Aggie network is for real. Like we make jokes, but if they want to buy him out, they will buy him out. And for whatever reason, Jimbo Fisher has done a really great job of ingratiating himself. At AM. And I don't think that that's an easy task. I think that's a really difficult and needy fan base. And he's been able to do that mostly by coming through at times when they don't expect him to. Last year, getting that win against Alabama was one in which we did not expect him to come through. Making the Orange Bowl the year prior was a year in which we didn't expect AM to do much. They're still able to pull something out of this year, but they're a far cry from being one of the four best teams in college football like I thought they were going to be to start the season. Yeah, I really can't believe they're in this situation. But at the same time, you think about it, you're like, well, this is kind of just how it's been as long as Jimbo Fisher has been the head coach. It just makes you wonder. I know that Jimbo's been under fire a lot recently. A lot of people criticizing the offense that he runs now. It's not really a modern offense. Is it the offense or is it just the quarterback? Like when he was at Florida State, he had Jameis Winston, who's one of the best college quarterbacks I've ever seen. And they haven't really been able to get that position right in recent years. And you're looking at a Miami team this weekend who's better than App State. It's another home game. If Texas A&M were to lose two home games before the start of ACC or of SEC play, excuse me, I I can't imagine their fan base is going to handle that that well. And, and then you consider last year, they I know they signed the you know greatest recruiting class maybe ever. What? How much time are fans willing to give Jimbo at this point? Is it okay? Well, we're going to just kind of give this year a wash because next year's the year. I don't think their fans think that way. RJ, maybe you have some better insight on the, how the fans feel here, but. If they lose again, I, I can't imagine that Jimbo's going to be in a very comfortable position there in uh, College Station. You said a lot there, so I'm going to I'm going to encompass this all. What I think is 
what's going to wear out an Aggie fan is what I think you're, you're really getting at. Cause you're touching on all the tentacles of how that moves. Right. Like one of the things I'm doing is I'm, I'm, I'm making faces cause I'm doing this math in my head and I'm thinking about what would I expect as an A&M fan? And, and frankly, what do A&M expects from their pro uh, wait, A&M fans expect from their program? I don't know what it's going to take for them to want to bounce him short of a losing season. Like, I honestly believe that they'll keep trying to ride this out. You mentioned Jameis Winston, who, yes, is one of the great quarterbacks that either one of us has ever seen in college football. And yet, I'll look at their recruiting after that. I'm talking about guys like DeAndre Francois, John Franklin III, right? We can keep going down the list of guys that you're like, wait a second, that dude was signed by Jimbo Fisher? Yeah, Kellen Mond didn't do a whole hell of a lot while he was at AM. So I think some of this is, can he raise up quarterbacks? But the part about him running an antiquated offense. I just don't buy it. I don't buy it because I watched Georgia win a national championship last year running a putt-putt offense, running a, we're going to hand the ball on first, second, third, and when we have an opportunity, we're going to throw it down the field, and we're going to hope that George Pickens is wide open when we do it. We've got one-on-one coverage because everybody's committed to stopping the run because we're so good up front. And I think that is the kind of offense that Jimbo Fisher ultimately wants to run. So when I hear people say things like, this offense is antiquated. I'm going, it's only antiquated if you don't have the dudes to run it. And that is the worry because to your point, they did sign their greatest recruiting class of all time. According to the two, four, seven sports composite a year after Alabama signed the greatest recruiting class of all time. It's about how do you develop those guys and how do you keep making this thing go? And this is another way in which I look at just Nick Saban and say, he's just different because Jimbo Fisher loses Mike Elko to Duke. Duke shows up, beats Northwestern. That's how good Mike Elko is right away. You add DJ Durkin, but it's not going as well as you thought it would go defensively, and you're the guy calling the plays, right? Nick Saban hasn't been the guy calling the plays for 20 years, and that includes when Jimbo Fisher was his offensive coordinator on his staff at LSU. I just think that it's going to take a whole hell of a lot for you to want to kick Jimbo Fisher out of it. you got to keep letting him try to figure it out because nobody wants to win the SEC championship more than that guy because, frankly – I don't think he likes looking up at Nick Saban knowing that he won a national championship at Florida State and nobody cares. Does that answer the question better? Because I think we're we're getting that we're agreeing, but we're finding different ways to say that, man, Texas A&M is real average. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to really say otherwise right now, but I think let's let this season play out, but it doesn't look too great for the Aggies. Okay, last one here. After two top 10 teams lost to unranked opponents last weekend, another ranked team in Wisconsin lost to an unranked opponent. Is college football on the verge of another chaos season? Maybe something like 2007. I'm going to be short here because producer Tyler has been way out in front on this one in that he was the first person to put this up in in meetings that we've had and trying to figure out what we want to do and how we want to do it for the show. But I thought this last year, and it turned out I was wrong, like many people are wrong, because it feels so chaotic during the non-conference schedule in that you see upsets where you don't expect to see upsets, and that's what makes the sport go. It's why I love it so much because Appalachian State will jump up and bite you at Kyle Field when you are the number six team in the country. Marshall will jump up and bite you when you are number eight team in the country in your home opening debut as the head coach, Notre Dame football, Marcus Freeman. That is why I love the sport. I need to see more of this in November because if I get to see, say, Kansas jumping up and beating, let's say, call it Texas, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Baylor, some amalgamation of those things, I'm inclined to believe you because Kansas finished as the number three team in the country in 2007 and in the Orange Bowl. 
that is the only way in which I'm willing to say we are looking at another 2007 because at the top of all of that, Kansas was not just good, they were damn good. So I'll answer the question in this way, Tyler. Do you think that Kansas is going to be damn good in 2022? I wouldn't say damn good. They haven't been damn good since the uh, Mangino days. But hey, they're impressive. Um, I, I agree on the the November sentiment. How Now, if Alabama had lost this past weekend, they came pretty close to, I'd start to buy in a little bit more to this chaos. But to be honest, the two teams that did lose to an unranked opponent, like if you were looking at the top 10, which team is most likely to be upset? I would say Notre Dame and Texas A&M probably made the most sense given the questions that they had coming into the season. So we need a team like Georgia or Alabama or even Ohio State, one of those teams to get tripped up. And, and once that happens, then I'll be like, okay, this season, who knows what's going to happen week to week. Yeah, man. In, in which case, I'm looking at UConn going, you're up. You're up this week, UConn. You're up for Michigan. Uh, yeah, that'll that'll do great, I'm sure. No. I'm with you. I think that if Alabama gets it up, takes an upset, Georgia takes an upset, teams that we just frankly expect to just march through their regular season schedule, that'll be that. But I'm here for chaos. I thrive in chaos. I love it when we have chaos happening. I love it when the rankings are all out of whack. And I love it even more when I get to see players and more importantly, fans get to have their moment in the sun. Shout out to the folks in Boone, North Carolina that absolutely tore the place down as their team was in Kyle Field knocking down AM. All right. That is going to do it for this episode of the number one college football show. My thanks as always to our lead producer, Tyler Wojak. You get to see him here for our mailbag each and every week. Our senior producer is Catherine Donnelly. Our director is John Marcus. Our social media maven is Javion Duncan. Our lead of screening is Rachel Cohen. And I'm the host, RJ. We will see y'all on Saturday from Nebraska. That's it for me. Deuces.